0: Well, if you would, take your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you would. 2 Peter chapter 1, for our guests today, thank you for being here, and it's wonderful to see each of you here today. Pastor Marty is gone on a much-deserved, well-needed uh, trip, and so I'm happy to be with you today. And so, 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse one, it says, "Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. And we've been going through this series over time since the beginning of the year. We're talking about sanctification. So this first part of 1 Peter, what we're talking about today is our sanctification. Well, these first verses here of this chapter 1 is all talking about the first part, and that is our justification. And many of you already know this, but it's a good reminder. Justification is a God thing alone that He instantly does in a person's heart that he awakens from the dead by his spirit, he honestly gives us the faith to believe and we respond to him. That is justification. But here in verse 5, we're going to kind of switch gears because you know that salvation is justification, sanctification, and then ultimately one day glorification. So in verse 5, if you will, He picks us up, and now we begin to talk about our sanctification. For this very reason, in other words, for the very reason God has justified us, for this very reason, now you and I have a part, not a part of our salvation, but a part of our growing in holiness. Because he says this, Make every effort to supplement your faith. Some of your translations will say, Make diligence. Take every precaution. So make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue, you know, is moral excellence. We talked about that many, many weeks ago. And virtue, knowledge. Knowledge of the Scriptures. Getting to know God better. Getting to know ourselves better. What the Scripture tells us about our own sin and our constant need of repentance And growing in Christ. But not only to that. To knowledge, verse 6 says, to self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing. They're ever growing in you. It says they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he had, was cleansed from his former sins. If you will, on your notes, just take a look on the left side of your notes. There is a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says this about sanctification. It's kind of a short, concise definition. What is sanctification? It is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So if you would take and flip over to Philippians chapter 2, probably here is another definition of what God is doing in you and I in this area of sanctification, probably than any other area. Philippians chapter 2, if you would, in verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13. So the very first part, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he begins to kind of clarify sanctification. Listen to what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, be careful. It does not say work for your salvation. He is saying now that it is in you, you are to work it out. It's through obedient actions that you and I do this. We respond to his word and to his spirit. And we're obeying him in our growth and our growing in holiness in sanctification. And so we're working it out. And why is that? It is because it is God in us who is causing this want to and the ability to be able to do it. So sanctification, you might be able to say, it is A God-enabling effort on our part. See, before Christ, you and I could do nothing. But after Christ, now that He lives within us, His Spirit lives within us, He has given us His Word, He has given us other godly people to influence us, that you and I now have the ability, because He is working in us, to work out what God has been doing in us and is continually doing. In fact, again, there's a quote on the other side of you, and this quote, the reason I put it there is because whenever you and I talk about our responsibility and our own personal growth, this will always come up. Well, i got to be careful about being legalistic about it. Like, I can't get to a point to where I think what I'm doing is really my salvation or What I am doing, I have to do it just right, and so you become legalistic. And so, there's always that caution, but the truth is, you and I have been given His Spirit. We are free to be able to obey. And so, again, this quote says this, Ours is an undisciplined age. The old disciplines are breaking down. Above all, the discipline of divine grace is derided as legalism, or is entirely unknown to a generation that is largely illiterate in the Scriptures. We need the rugged strength of Christ's character that can come only from discipline. And, and so the thing is, it's not letting let go and let God kind of a philosophy, but it is you and I are to be obediently active in the pursuit of growing in our faith. Amen. And so, I, just one of the things every morning with my quiet time, I, I remind myself I must exercise self-control. And I just want to read this passage I've been memorizing this year. 2 Timothy 2.21 says this, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use... Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so since we're talking about self-control this morning, it's not self-control for any other reason other than that I could grow in my faith. I would honor Christ. God could use me as his instrument that I would give glory to God, I could bring good to other people, I would experience joy because, honestly, you cannot experience joy as a Christian living unholy. And so as God enables us to live holy and we're responding to those things that He's prompting us through His Word to do, that we're free to be able to do these things. Again, I'm reminded, here's a guy that you might not think of, hey, why quote him? But this guy said this, if you would, look over Winston Churchill said to every man and woman, there comes in his lifetime that special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder, offered a chance to do a special thing, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified for that which would be his finest hour. And going along with 2 Timothy 2.21, that's what you and I are to be. We're to be ready at all times, fit spiritually, to be able to be used for His glory and the good of other people at any time. In fact, if you would, turn to 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. You remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Marty preached through this. Just another reminder, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train, or some of y'all's translation says discipline. It literally is the word gymnasium. In other words, working out spiritually. You are to train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I just want to remind you, it does not say that bodily training is of no value. It does not say that. And since you and I, as a believer, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's the instrument that He wants to use in this world You and I must exercise self-control to make it, and I hope you hear this last sentence, make it His servant and not allow it, our body, to make us its slave. Self-control, one of the reasons you and I must have self-control, again, is that we could be used for His glory, be used for his in, as an instrument in this world and not allow our body to make us its slave as far as it's possible for you and I we do not allow our body to make it its, us its slave so if you will 1 Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 very familiar 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which you and I know means to be set apart wholly unto God. And you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, self-control. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgress. It, it means to go beyond God-set boundaries that we don't transgress. And wrong is brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives us His Holy Spirit. And I put this uh, reference. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these things are improper for God's holy people. So with that... I want you to turn to where we're going to camp out. If you will, take a hard left and go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is very familiar to most of you. You'll look at maybe what in your Bible talks about King David and Bathsheba, and you'll instantly recall the story. And if not careful, you'll easily just go, I've heard that story. And I've got this. And then you can daydream the rest of the day. All right. So I would really encourage you, even though it's real familiar, to like maybe just quickly pray or decide, I'm going to hear this like I've never heard this before. So like really zero in, if you would. I want to call your attention to just the first few words as this opens up in verse 1. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Now listen to just these first few words. Then it happened in the spring. Then it happened in the spring. What's the it? So if you know the story, King David, he's going to send everybody off to battle, but he's going to stay back. But I want to suggest to you, then it happened. So the it is... Something that has been happening in David's heart for a long time and it's about to be exposed. So with that, read those words again. Then it happened in the spring. In other words, something that has been hidden in David's heart. And you know this. All of us know this. Anything hidden in the dark will one day blossom full bloom in the light. Nothing is hidden. It's never hidden from God. And it will be fully exposed. And so then it happened in the spring. What was that? At the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they brought destruction on the sons of Ammon. And they besieged. And David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, if you just read that, you would think, well, that's a success story. Like, David has done so well that now he can just send other people to do his responsibilities. And he can just stay back and take it easy. But you know this is no success story. In fact, David is kind of in midlife. He has begun to relax let go, delegate, set back, not in a positive way though, at all. In fact, I put a little sentence there in your notes and I'd underline it and circle it. It is something I read every morning in my quiet time, and it's this. Be extremely cautious of the comfort of your current situation. No matter what your age, Whatever your season of life, whatever your economic uh, deal in life is, whatever, it does not matter. Be very, very cautious of getting comfortable in whatever situation you find yourself in. Like, hey, I've got it made. I don't have to struggle now. I, I don't have to be as mindful. I don't have to watch out. I don't have to be as cautious. Be extremely. Be very, very alert. Because there is never a season in life that you can let up on self-control, especially as you age. You cannot let up. Verse 2, Now at evening time David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance and the safest thing and the best thing David could have done is got on his horse and rode to battle. He would have been safer in that battle because he is losing this battle already. He should have got up and gone, done something. But what did he do? In fact, if you'll take a left again, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a quote. He wrote a little bitty book called Temptation. And, and this is just me, but out of all the book, this little quote sums up the whole book. It says this, In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burn and it is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sensual desire or ambition or vanity, desire for revenge, love for fame or power, greed for money. Finally, strange desire for the beauty of the world, of nature. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us, He loses all reality. All desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. And if you underline, I even underline in this quote, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused, enveloped in mind and will of man in deepest darkness, the powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within us rises up against the word of God. It's, we forget God is right there in the midst of it. And so in verse 3, So David sent servants, he inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter? He's, she's a daughter of someone. In fact, she's the wife of someone. He was really taking a risk. Like trying to remind the king of something he didn't know. And yet, this is exactly what our conscience does, right? It's a warning signal that God gives us. And when it goes off, it is to step back. It's to rethink things. It's to take caution. But oftentimes, in moments like this, what happens... I've done it. We've all done it at times. We push through whenever the conscience is saying, stop, slow down, take note of what is happening. And yet, whenever you push through your conscience, you know what happens? You're you're violating your conscience. It's the warning system. Like for those of you just getting ready to start driving, I'm sure your mom and dad have told you this, but when the little red lights on the dashboard come on, that means like, Pull over. Uh, call somebody. Uh, don't just keep going. Like, hey, look, there's a lot of other little things that aren't lit up. So maybe what I ought to do is just wait till they're all lit up, kind of a deal. Like, like, no, no, like, like when one comes on, like you need to take care of that thing. It's it's warning you, like something needs to be taken care of. And you know what happens is we let that light on the dashboard go and we ignore it. And then we don't see the next one come on, and we don't don't remember how long that thing's been on. And then all of a sudden, the engine stops, and it's tragic. And so the conscience, and so God has put a servant in David's path who honestly is thinking clearer than David is. But again, I just want to remind you, this is not just all of a sudden this is happening in David's life. It has been happening for a long time. It's just coming to light. Because verse 4 says, Then David sent messengers, had her brought, and when she came to him, him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. But the woman conceived, so that she sent word, informed David, and said, I am pregnant. David, at any time of this, and i maybe give you an illustration. Every time he bucks the Spirit of God, rejects what God has clearly said in His Word, he keeps stepping down. He just keeps stepping down. And at any time he could have stopped and repented and confessed his sins, that doesn't mean the consequences would have gone away. But God would have forgave him, and he could have been starting going in the right direction, but yet he did not. And so what did it say in verse 6? Then David sent word to Joab, her husband. Send me Uriah, word to Joab, to send me Uriah, her husband. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how... Job's well-being was. How's the war going, kind of? And how are the people and the condition of the war? Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, "'Go down to your house, wash your feet.' So Uriah left the king's house. A gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept on the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. He did not go down to his house." Now, when they informed David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah, they're staying in temporary shelters. My Lord, Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Should I then go to my house, eat, drink, sleep with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also and tomorrow I'll let you go back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and that day after. Now David summoned Uriah. He ate and drank in his presence. He made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, Uriah went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servants, and he still did not go down to his house. Just listen for a moment. We'll continue reading, but listen to Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. David, in all of his strength, is trying to conceal this. But you know, everybody who was David's servant knew about it. Everybody knew about it. God knew about it. David just seems to be the only person blind to it. In verse 14... So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter the following, Station Uriah on the front line in the fierce battle and pull back from him so that he may be struck and killed. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he stationed Uriah at the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab. Some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Sin has more casualties than you and I can ever imagine. I've said it. We've all said it before. This is not going to hurt anybody. And yet, somehow... And in some way, there's more casualties. When we decide to go ahead, violate our conscience, go past the boundaries, God has set in his word. And if you would, in verse 26. Now, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband, Uriah, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent servants and had her brought to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, again, you've heard this story before, so here's the question. Can this type of thing happen suddenly, or like in a moment, This could have happened to David. Well, sure it could. But it didn't with David. In fact, it's been brewing in David's heart for a long time. And I just want to suggest to you it's his lack of self-control because I want you, if you would, take a real, uh, another left there in the Old Testament. I want you, if you would, go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17. While you're turning there, just a, a couple of things I've been thinking about for several weeks. You know, you and I can choose the pain of self-control or we can choose the pain of regret. And, and you know that self-control at times is painful. You know what I mean? Like, come in just a few weeks, Brahms is going to start having eggnog ice cream. Probably the weakest moments of my life uh, of the year. In fact, last year I about threw my shoulder out a few times while I'm driving home as I jerked the wheel into Bronx because they have eggnog ice cream and eggnog shake. I've been known to have it a.m. and p.m. on the same day. Self-control at times is painful. But you know this, Right? Self-control also brings freedom. That's God's design. He saved us from our sin. He's doing a work in us that we could live freely. And part of that gift is the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's self-control. And part of our sanctification is exercising self-control. That does not mean that it's always easy. Sometimes it can be kind of painful. But in the long view of things is you can either choose the pain of self-control or the pain of regret. So choosing self-control is way, way better, right? Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. It's been happening in David's heart for a long time. It just was exposed in this story. Because in verse 14 it says, When you come to the land and the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around you. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreign over you who is not your brother, only he must not inquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17. Well, not only that, verse 17 says, He shall not inquire, acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levites, the priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law And these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continual long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Second Samuel chapter five, verse thirteen tells us. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Her- Herdum, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And most of these marriages, they had to do with treaties with other kings. And, and hear this, it was culturally acceptable. It was culturally acceptable for the king to have many wives. But you and I know, when it comes to culture... And it comes to Scripture, you and I never go with, the, with what, the culture when it violates the Scripture. And young people and children, the Bible is very clear. We're to obey the authorities of the land. They make laws and they put in direction for you and I. But here... When any of those laws violate God's word, when any of those laws go against what God has already said, it is not right. Hope you hear that. Just because government says it's lawful does not mean it's right. David has been drifting in his self-control for a long time, he's not been taking his God-given responsibilities seriously. He he's beginning to feel entitled, like I can give things away to other people. I don't have to do this anymore. His conscience is being dulled, and he's not heeding the warnings of Scripture. He's not heeding the warnings of other people that are advising him, "You shouldn't go this way." And the longer it's happening, his conscience is becoming more and more, not only dulled, but seared. And if you know anything about being seared, and and I happen to know this. So I used to be a welder, and I like to dabble in blacksmithing. And I have seared my arms and fingers in some places. And you know what that means? It means I can't feel things anymore in that particular area. That can be good. That can be really bad, be really bad. I remember the uh, the guy who taught me welding in Votech. You know, this is his real name. His last name was Nut, Mister Nut. And um, when I started in welding, we were given a plate of steel, and all you had, and some of you guys like Glenn, some of you all old welders, you know this. You, you weld a bead, and you weld a bead, and you just keep welding and and then you'd take it to Mr. Nutt, and he would examine to see how well you were doing. And I can just remember Mr. Nutt putting his finger on there, pointing things out, and it's smoking. <laughs> and it stinks. But he's pointing out here, here, you know, and he's running his finger across the bead. And, and, and he doesn't feel it at all because he has seared the nerves in his fingers, so he has seared And so what happens every time we violate our conscience, we sear our conscience. In fact, in your bulletin there, it says this worship guide, Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, a person who is not diligent in self-control becomes vulnerable to other things as well. And lack of self-control in one area gives way to the lack of self-control in another area, and then it's just like a domino effect. Listen to Proverbs 24. At the very end of this particular Proverbs, it's talking about the sluggard, the person who is lack in his diligence... And it says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all grown over with thorns. The ground was covered with needles and its stone wall was broken down. And I saw and I considered it. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. There at the very bottom of your worship guide, those notes, there's just two things I want to camp on for a few moments before we take communion together. These are not, nothing new to you, but good reminders for all of us. A lack of self-control in seemingly small matter matters. Often gives way to larger matters. So I just want to ask a question, and this is not like, oh yeah, the guy or the girl sitting next to me, yeah. But I mean, honestly, just you and the Lord, I ask you this question. Is there is there an area you are laxadaisical in your self-control? Nothing is too small. Where are you lacking in self-control? Again, nothing is too small. The last one, it says, God honoring self-control is not just about stopping certain behaviors. And and. You know, whenever you think of self control, you're always thinking about like self control of not doing this or not doing this. It's always about not doing something, but honestly, self control is more than that. Self control, God honoring self control, often requ- requires us to start doing some things. In other words, it takes self control to not just not do the things we shouldn't, but it takes self-control to start doing things we need to do. In other words, maybe God is prompting you an area of your life that you need to start doing something, and it takes self-control to say, yes, I'm going to start doing that. And so, again, just question. I just want you to think about it. In These two areas, little matters, they often tend to give way to larger. It's not just about stopping, but it's about starting. So just a little bit, listen, consider these in your spiritual life, in your spiritual life. It's not just about stopping, but is there something you need to start doing? physical life, when it comes to your body, God's temple, that, what He's given to you. And mind you, many of us have health issues and different things in life that hinder us. But as much as possible to you, are you showing self-control in your physical body? Is there something you need to stop Is there something you need to start doing? Your mind. Do you have self-control when it comes to your mind? Not just stopping something, but maybe starting. Oh, it's just a little thing, but it gives way to much larger mentally. Here's an area. Emotionally. Are you showing self control in your emotional area? When it comes to your finances, are you showing self control? Are there some things you need to stop? Are there some things you need to start? Entertainment. Is there something you need to stop? And the answer is yes. If you question it, just yell. Just stop it. But is there something different? You don't need to be going that way. In your area of service to the Lord and good to other people, are there areas you need to start? Are there areas you need to stop doing? Now, all this in light of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ.